think his work is, first of all, you knew right away that here was such a brilliant actor who didn't take himself seriously, who probably on some level, like me with Tawny, felt he could have had a very different career if maybe times were different or he'd had different goals, that he could have been a great King Lear or what have you. Um, and he brought all of that truth to it. Um, and Alan was such a truthful um, actor. You know, honestly, I can't imagine our, our little ensemble without um, Alan particularly, but without any one of us. Um, but I think the fact that Alan Rickman had chosen to come over and do this with, with us gave us such legitimacy, you know. He just, he, he was funny and sardonic and caustic. And... Instead of judging me, he accepted me. And acceptance is a huge thing to have somebody accept it, not only accept it, but then honor who I was. I saw him um, about six weeks before he passed away. He came to see a play that I was doing in New York. And we saw him backstage, and he was a little frail. And uh, he said he had had a stroke, you know. And we were like, are you kidding? What? You know, it was, but he, he was with his wife, and he was, you know, came to the theater, flew to New York and see plays. And uh, we went to dinner afterwards, and he was, you know, just funny and sweet and was so lovely, and then he died like six weeks later. He didn't want us to know that he was dying. He'd said he'd had a stroke. And so that the evening was not in any way morbid or sad. It was just another little, Alan's here, he's getting better, and, and um, <laughs> I don't think he might be saying this, but uh, I hope not, Alan, forgive me. But uh, he had to drop out of a project because of his illness. Uh, it was because of the stroke, he'd said. And he said, and he goes like, and I go like, oh, who got the role? And he goes like, Bill Nye. <laughs> With great disdain. <laughs> uh, he was the first movie star that wanted to be my friend. Daniel Radcliffe, Emma Watson, and many more mourn the death of Alan Rickman. The beloved actor passed away on Thursday. His co-stars and friends took to social media to pay their respects. Radcliffe penned an emotional statement, in part writing, quote, Alan Rickman is undoubtedly one of the greatest actors I will ever work with. He was so encouraging of me both on set and in the years post-Potter. I will carry the lessons he taught me for the rest of my life and career. Emma Watson wrote, I feel so lucky to have worked and spent time with such a special man and actor. I'll really miss our conversations. J.K. Rowling tweeted, There are no words to express how shocked and devastated I am to hear of Alan Rickman's death. He was a magnificent actor and a wonderful man. Emma Thompson, who starred in seven films with Rickman, said, He was above all things a rare and unique human being, and we shall not see his like again. Jamie Lee Curtis said, Oscar noms out. Couldn't care as Alan Rickman is gone and could have done every job on those movies as well, women included. Stunning talent. Seth Meyers, Katie Couric, and Hugh Jackman are just some of the other stars expressing their sadness over Rickman's passing. 
Hello there and welcome to Spro and Lee Take on the Academy, still the only podcast that rights the wrong, celebrates the slighted, and rips Oscars from undeserving hands. Today's episode is really special and it's going to build upon our last one, which in case you missed, focused less on undeserving hands and more on the slighted. We talked about the career of the great Alan Rickman and we gave him our love and the Academy Award he never received. But while Rickman has long been a satisfying cinematic fixture in our lives, we remain mere spectators with no personal accounts of his brilliance and good nature. But lucky for us and lucky for you, today is part two of our Alan Rickman tribute. And we're joined by two people who can, in fact, provide some of the insight that we lack. These two call Rickman a friend and a muse. And while we're all here because we love and miss him, these two folks have more reason than most. A grateful welcome to filmmakers Jody Savin and Randall Miller. How are you both doing today? Doing well. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Thanks for coming. Thanks for coming. We uh, will try and temper our excitement, behave professionally, and of course, I promise to watch my goddamn language. Um, That's okay. Let us know. If we, if we use the wrong language, please let us know. Yeah. I don't think there's any limits. <laughs> the two of you are consummate partners, not only in your personal lives, but your professional lives as well. Just first and foremost for our listeners, how did you two find one another? What came first, marriage or movies? Oh, wow. Uh, <laughs> we actually met in film school. Yeah, we were at the AFI, American Film Institute. And uh, the first time I met Jody, I, w- I had just done the first cycle film, which is as a director, you do three sort of half hour movies in your first year. And I was one of the first ones that did a film. And it was, you know, honestly, <laughs> I've looked at it since. It's not that great. But it was about a guy who dates three women simultaneously. So it was incredibly misogynistic and kind of <laughs> goofy and stuff, but it was made, you know, coherently and because I had already been to USC film school. So I had a, at least a little bit of knowledge how to make technically make a movie. So I finished the movie and Jody comes up to me and she says that uh, I'm really good filmmaker, but I'm wasting it, my talent on dribble. No. And uh, from that point on, we ended up sort of starting to work together because she obviously was a much better writer than I ever was. And that's how we sort of began our working together relationship. And Jody, you agree with all that? <laughs> yeah, pretty much. I had already been, I'm older than Randy, and I had already been there a year and sort of seen a lot of really crummy films made in film school. <laughs> and then his film was really ambitious and really professional. But yeah, I hated the content. So I told him. <laughs> <laughs> so even further in the past than that, when did you each fall in love with the medium? Like when did you decide to go to film school? My parents are both doctors. I was trying to, I was going to go into that field. I was going to UC Davis and I was sort of uh, disillusioned with that whole organic chemistry and that whole sort of having to do that stuff. And I auditioned for a play up there and that sort of led me to coming back down to LA in the summer and trying to act. And and at some place, somewhere along the way, I was acting in a, a play and, and I hadn't really thought about going into filmmaking, but I was just piddling and acting sort of. And I was in a play that Mary Ellen Trainer, who was Bob Zemeckis's wife at the time, was in. And I met Bob Zemeckis, who directed Back to the Future and later Forrest Gump and other things. And he said to me, wow, you know, you have a lot of talent as a writer because he'd read a play of mine. Maybe you should think about going to film school. I think he was trying to tell me I wasn't that great of an actor. (laughs) And perhaps, you know, I could find some other way to make a living. But anyways, he helped me get into USC film school. He wrote me a letter. And that's sort of where I sort of started learning about filmmaking. But I've always loved movies. I just, that was sort of the beginning for me. And I've always been a writer, a bit of a painter. I don't think I had any grand plan to go to film school, but after college, I was in New York 
trying to be a poet and a playwright. And I ended up being a musical director on soap operas. And it was sort of like instead of a waitressing job, I wasn't good at keeping waitressing jobs. So I got this job as a musical director and we got nominated for three Emmys for the music during my tenure. And suddenly people, I was like, will you read my writing? And people were saying, do the music, do the music. And I thought, I'm never going to really have a career in music because I'm not educated at all in music. And so I decided to make a change and and I applied to the American Film Institute. I'd been writing and writing and writing and writing and writing. So I had a lot of material and I got in and I went. So I, you know, packed up, went to California and never went back to the East Coast. (laughs) Man, I love I love how like all these things had to align for you two to meet (laughs) in film school. Perhaps a boring question, but one I like discussing nonetheless, who has influenced you both? Uh, Jody with your writing and then Randall with your directing. I don't know. That's a hard question because I read a lot and my influences are forever changing. Mm. I mean, I was fortunate to get a really great education and to learn mostly from my college education that you have to be a lifelong student. So I would say that I read a lot, study a lot. You know, every time we write anything, even if it's fiction, I make sure that I've read everything I can find on the material. And so I think my influences are forever in flux. Um, right now, I just finished Anita Hill's book, and I'm reading Michelle Obama's book. And one is believing and one is becoming. And it's a little confusing. Those are the two books I'm focused on now, sort of looking at them comparatively. Cool. For me, you know, it's interesting. When, growing up, I, I watched sort of the mainstream movies, you know, when I was a kid. And I didn't really think about the filmmaking that much when I was, when I was a kid. But then when I went to film school at USC, I started to really, you know, because you're around a lot of other people that are all also trying to get into this field, I started to just start to see everything that was made. Every movie that came out, every TV show that came out, old movies, old TV shows. I was just sort of ravenous in my, you know, consumption of this medium. And even with Jody and I too, we, we both pretty much see everything. We see series, we see movies, we, you know, and if we don't see the whole series, we see part of a series. I try to see everything that I can whenever I can. American, foreign. I, I love now. Netflix because of the the fact that you can see things from all over the world. I just love to see what people are doing. You know, the best classes at USC were the ones where they analyzed older movies, you know, uh, uh, French New Wave movies, the Western, get to see those movies in their original form on the big screen. I would agree. I miss the theater. I still haven't been back. Yeah, that's sort of what I, I've done all my life. I've sort of watched things and I, I like to see everything that comes out, basically. That's kind of so, like what they teach you in like the school is that you never, never stop imbibing, never stop bringing in different artistic takes in order to create your own visions. Exactly. I really agree with that. So Jody, you're, uh, it sounds to me like you would consider yourself a writer first. or Yes, definitely. I mean... Yes. My most comfortable place is alone with, you know, a pen and paper or a computer. So producer second. Yeah. The kind of producing I do is not as creative. And I always have thought of myself more as an artist. But producing uh, is something that has to get done if you want to actually make a movie. So along the way, I taught myself, you know, what what is required to produce. And a lot of it is really not very 
sexy because a lot of it is contracts and accounting and haggling and um, <laughs> that was my next question too. Things up and making spreadsheets and making sure things get done. That was my next question too because I was gonna. I was curious what exactly it is that a producer does because I don't know. Well, there's many many different kinds of producers. It's a bit of a wild west kind of thing. Like a director has a very prescribed job. Obviously, a writer does. Um, most other people on this set have a pretty prescribed job. But a producer can be the person who raises the money and then never shows up on set. The producer can be the, you know, somebody who funds the movie, like literally writes a check. And then you have line producers supervising producers that make sure that everybody's doing their job and literally goes through and decides every piece of equipment that will be rented or bought or, you know, put into a truck. That's one kind of producing, which is a very technical form of producing. There's other kinds of producers that are there in the background, like making sure all the contracts get done and, you know, helping to put all the funding in place and making sure that all the documentation, because an independent movie is a startup. So somebody's (sighs) got to do the work of any kind of startup, which is creating the entity and servicing the entity, and then making sure all the parts of the entity are in place and functional so i always thought i wanted to make movies and um i love watching behind the scenes stuff and i whenever i think of a producer i think of frank marshall who um on the special features for the raiders of lost ark box set he jumped in the plane where um indy fights with that big german dude and yeah. uh, he, he's the one that uh, Karen Allen knocks over the head with the, I was like, oh, that's a cool dude. That's a, so producers can find money and sometimes jump in uh, and act a little bit if, if nobody shows up on that day. Well, you're sort of like the stopgap at sometimes in that way. But when you're making a movie, sometimes you're trying to figure out how to get the movie made. And, you know, you might be the producer for a time, beri- a time period and then someone else, you know, you get someone else excited about it and then they come in and they're kind of like the financial producer. You know, it's, it can be any number of things. It has a very wide range of things that can fall under the the term producer. And you, Randall, are writer, director, producer, editor, and even actor, it sounds. Man of many hats. Which of those do you love to hate and which do you hate to love? (laughs) Which do I love to hate? Oh my (laughs) gosh. You know, the the one that that I straight up love without question is editing. And that's because you've finished your, all the difficulties of producing Saying, you know, Jody and I are like trying to get the money and trying to put it together. And I've finished all the difficulties. You could be directing something and it could be very difficult. You know, there could be difficulties with the actor. There could be difficulties with locations or whatever it is. But the editing, you're now just all by yourself sitting here, like putting it together. And there's something kind of, for me, magical about that. And you're creating a reality just in your editing. You know, that's the thing that's just sort of pure, the purest, you know, part of filmmaking. The the part that I, I kind of hate is the producing part is having to sort of figure out how to get the money put it together you have this idea you have these like all these different possibilities and it's trying to figure that part out which Jody and I have sort of different you know things that we work on but we sort of come together on the fact that we have to figure out a way to get whatever it is 
that we want to do made. There's never like a blueprint. It's always like you're figuring it out for the first time every single time. That's the thing that probably is the worst part of filmmaking. Sounds daunting. Sounds daunting. Yeah. It sounds kind of similar to like what Jody was saying earlier about like writing being her happy place. Just like put her in a room with a pen and paper and she's good to go where you're similar, but it's the editing bay where it just puts you in a room. Yeah, because you've now you've now you've done the writing, you've done the you've done the heavy lifting of the producing, you've you've directed it, you know, and you're and now you're getting to live with the performances of like an Alan Rickman or whomever you you have in your movie. And it's just so magical in a way, because you're now once you cut the slate off and once you cut off the parts that are like the stuff that's not really in the movie part, now you're just making choices as to, you know, different parts of the performance. You're like talking to the characters in a way. Like I end up talking to the characters often when I'm (laughs) sitting here editing. That's awesome. (laughs) Well, normally the custom here is to wait until the end of a show, I think, to plug present or upcoming projects. But there's some synchronicity with your next film and our good friends over at Odd Dog Coffee. So if you don't mind, could you dive in with us and talk a little bit about Coffee Wars and we'll sip on some delicious Odd Dog Coffee. For some of us, coffee is more than just a pick-me-up. For some of us, coffee is as important as who should have won Best Actor of 1993. We here at Spro & Lee Take on the Academy take our coffee seriously. We are passionate, eccentric, and a little odd. And for us, there's Odd Dog. Odd Dog Coffee is a specialty roaster based out of Cleveland, Ohio. They offer committed coffee drinkers a reimagined version of flavored coffee. They promise a high-quality roast profile to create a solid bean. And when they flavor their beans, they don't spray them down with cheap, stale chemicals. No, 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 no. No, they use fresh ingredients like cacao nibs, cayenne pepper, and cinnamon stick. What you experience is a balanced bean combined with a touch of spice to create a uniquely delicious cup of coffee you can drink every day. Head over to odddogcoffee.com where you can choose from four original roasts, cardamom and clove, just the beans, cinnamon and cayenne cacao, or my personal favorite, reishi shroom and L-theanine. Place your order now and get free shipping on orders over $40. Like film nerds, Odd Dog is at home with its dedication, comfortable in its uniqueness, cozily familiar, yet distinctly odd. The movies you watch are too special to be normal, and the coffee you drink is too precious to be anything but odd dog. Well, first of all, I, of course, when you sent the coffee, I, of course, brewed it and tasted it, and I think it's really, really good. Like, it's really interesting in the fact that it's got this sort of spiciness to it, and I could taste the chocolate, the dark chocolate in there. So I thought that was really interesting. I I was trying to figure out the cinnamon. It's really interesting, too, but I didn't feel that first. I felt the the little bit of the spice in the chocolate. I thought that was And this is a man who knows an awful lot about coffee. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I also love the aesthetic. I love the, I just think the aesthetic is really good. The mugs, the packaging. Nice to know that you guys enjoyed it. He does it. He does good work, I think. The coffee movie idea came from similar place that when we were doing Bottle Shock. Bottle Shock is a you know movie about wine, and it was just such a magical time to do a movie about about wine. You know, and that sort of told the story of something that we kind of we really like. We really like wine, and I really like coffee. And so the idea was to try and find another thing, and that would be similar in some ways to Bottle Shock, but different. You know, and that's where the origin of it came from. And then the coffee movie itself 
started looking into it further and realized that there's something called the World Barista Championships, which is literally a competition of who's the best barista <laughs> around the world. And That's it's awesome. not just the U.S. It's, you know, it's Korea, it's South Africa, it's Australia, it's Japan. Hey, Cambodia has a champion barista. Yeah, Cambodia. There's the, there was one that recently, the first woman that won uh, was from Poland. You know, so it's, it's pretty amazing how sort of universal coffee is. And the World Barista Championship is is a really, you know, when you look at it, it's a little bit of a quirky thing. It's like a stadium setting with these baristas have 15 minutes to make three different drinks, a pulled espresso, a latte, and a specialty drink. And the specialty drink can be everything from some crazy, you know, uh, frozen drink that has a coffee aspect to it. But basically, it's a great sort of backdrop, you know, for a story. And so... The story is about a, a young woman who is a, a vegan barista owner in London. She has a, a vegan shop. And so she wants to compete against normal latte makers, which is which are people who use cow's milk. It turns right. out the competition, the World Barista competition, you have to use cow's milk. That's in the rule book. So the dilemma for the movie is that she wants to do it differently than anybody else has done it, which is the vegan way, which is rice milk, soy milk, oat milk, or one of those. And she's a committed vegan, yeah. and we are a pretty vegan household, and all, most of the people that worked on the movie were dedicated vegans. That's a strange – Why? What? what is the genesis of that rule? Why would they be like, hey, let's make sure and put this in the bylines so nobody shows up with any well, oat milk or nothing? Well, I, don't, I think I, – yeah, I think it was because originally – I guess it came from Italy or wherever the original latte was made, but it had to be done a certain way. It had to have a certain amount of uh, milk and had, you know, a cappuccino is one thing. A latte is a different thing. You know, when someone says a full white, flat white, they're all different drinks. But and I also think when the rules were made, no one had contemplated uh, nut yeah. milks, right? Or, alt or alternative milks. Yeah. It's just sort of the way it was. And she wants to change that justifiably. I mean, I don't drink milk and coffee. Yeah. I don't drink cow's milk. So, yeah. And the idea was to try and do something that, like, I think it's important to try and make movies that say, even if it's a comedy, to try and say something that kind of helps the planet, that says something to sort of improve the world and give a little bit of a message, right? So, the fact that she's trying to do this thing, which is in a way she's trying to help curb global warming and everything else because cows produce a certain amount of gases, which, which hurt the environment. And the more cows you have, the more of this problem you have with the ozone and everything else. So she's so she's trying to do it one cup of coffee at a time. And so that's the that's sort of the crux of the movie. It's a funny movie. It's the cast is is all British because of course we love British actors, as we'll talk about. <laughs> and it's and it's it's set in London, although we shot it in Serbia. Yeah, and Colombia, and Colombia, South America, because we had to go to the coffee plantations, of course. Oh, hmm. wow. I hope that there's some of the same kind of camera work of the uh, coffee plantations as we got to see of the vineyards in, uh, in Bottle Shop. There is. I mean, the, the, up in the mountains of Labana, which is above Bogota, there are these amazing, breathtaking, the lines of coffee plants are very similar to the lines of the way the vines are in Napa. It's very similar. And so there are a lot of aerial shots of all these beautiful places. And That's she's cool. going there to try and find the very best beans, the very best coffee. You know, it's very similar to wine in, in the sense that there's 
the way you treat the vines makes them better. Well, the way you treat the coffee plants makes them better as well. The way, the where they are, whether they're facing west, whether they're facing east, and how the wow. mist is coming off the, the side of the mountain, you know, it changes the, the taste of the, of the beans. That's so, cool too, because I think everybody's got an idea in their head of what a vineyard looks like, but I'm picture, trying to picture a coffee plantation. And I'm, until you said that they're, they're set up in rows sort of like a vineyard, I, I don't really have a picture of it in my head. It's rocky terrain. You know, it's the top of, of these mountains. The higher the elevation, the better the beans, right? So they're in Guatemala, they're very, they're really high elevation, the best beans, the best, the other best beans are, you know, in Africa, or like in Kenya, in the very high elevations. The worst beans are traditionally in Brazil, where they've torn down the rainforest, and those are kind of flatter areas, right? So the best beans are like Colombia, Ecuador, Guatemala, in these very high elevations that are close to, it's really similar to wine close to the equator right and the same thing with with wine the grapes they want to be in a certain terroir terroir, how do terroir. You say terroir which is a certain area that is is drier in a, in a certain part of the globe like you don't have them high up as much high up you know in canada let's say or or you know in europe higher up in europe it, they tend to be in a in a place that has a certain dryness to it so it's really similar that's what's really interesting about it there's a lot of similarities that's awesome so we're gonna get into your other films, but there's a common thread kind of with the realism or based on a true story of your films. Do you have an idea before your next film of being like, I want to do a film about coffee or does, you know, like an article in a newspaper, like reach out to you and you go, oh, I want to, I want to research. Maybe this is a story I want to do next. Like what is the genesis of your creating? Well, there's not really one path. When we were younger, we spent a lot of time saying, what if, what if, what if, what yeah. if, and trying to come up with ideas, right? And then ideas sort of come to you. And I think sort of the more you read and the more you watch and the more you live, the more ideas sort of just fall in your lap and you try to think like, you know, okay, so it'd be great to do a movie in the world of coffee, but who are the characters? Who is this about? Who populates it? Like Judgment of Paris is, you know, was an event that happened. But until we met the Barretts and realized that there was a father-son story at the heart of Bottle Shock, we didn't know what that movie was. We had to go there and sort of figure out who are the characters, you know, who are the human beings that this story is about. And especially with when you're trying to do something that has some humor mixed in with it, you want to figure out what the sort of the edges between the characters, like what is the conflict going to be and how does that conflict sort of play out? Especially with Bottle Shock, that was, you know, you have this historical event, but like, what are the edges? Where are the, Where's the conflict? Where's the sort of humor? Where can it be born from? You know, and the same thing with the coffee movie. It's like, where can it be born from? You know, and of. if you're lucky enough to work with actors like Alan, you can sort of sit down in the early process process and talk at great length about who the character is and why why the story is important and you know what role the character plays and what the character's arc is and what the character learns and really break down the narrative that's the really great part when you're in the early stages of a movie yeah i mean especially yeah especially working with a great actor like like alan it was always like it was like figuring out you know see, thinking about the idea of the story and also thinking about 
what he has, what who he is, and how what what depth of character he can bring to whatever this idea you might have, and then shaping the the story around those things together. You know, that makes it more interesting. I think. Well, before we get into Rickman anymore, it might be premature, but do you have any idea how and when our listeners can expect the film? How they would be able to see it? Yeah. So, we're, well, right now we're in the um, just finishing it up and doing the sales of it. It was independently made, so it's. You know, the, in this day of streamers, it's probably going to be a streamer, and it's most likely going to come out next year. We're doing some of the festivals now, and that'll sort of carry us up to when the movie comes out. So I would imagine the movie's probably going to come out in like the first quarter of next year. That's great. We'll make sure and keep our listeners abreast. I think, um, Jody, you also said that maybe when it comes out, uh, some kind of a coffee event. So we could talk about that later. Yeah, with that your would be sponsor. Great. That'd be great. <laughs> That's a funny thing. You know, when you do, we, we did Bottle Shock. It, it was really fun. It was like we would be invited to wine events because we didn't know that much about wine, but we knew something about wine. So we get invited to wine events. And it was always fun because it, it gave the people who were into wine another thing to talk about, a, a movie. And there's a lot of people that are really into coffee as well. And we've come to know and come to meet a bunch of of amazing people in the coffee space too and it would be great to do that to like have events where we talk about the various coffees or the movie and I'll, and then see the movie and then have great coffee you don't have to answer this but who's more eccentric would you say coffee people or wine people i don't depends on how you define eccentric <laughs> yeah I first mean, of all <laughs> i mean the thing about the coffee thing you don't have to have a lot of money right with yeah with, so it's more egalitarian you but you know there's been this great democratization of the of wine wine consumers and the wine business. And, and I attribute some of that to Bottle Shock because <laughs> I, I think, you know, pre-Bottle Shock, you know, certainly pre-Judgment of Paris, the event that Bottle Shock is about, there was this sort of snobbery about who had the monopoly on great wine. And I think, and I think it was Alan's dream and our dream that we just blow a hole in that notion because wine is now made all over the world. But when we made that movie and Alan was saying, and, you know, there will be, I don't the exact he line. said. He said that he, you know, he leans back at the end. He says there'll be there'll be good wine made in Australia and China yeah. and mm-hmm. you know all these various places. He talked about. Well, you know, China has a lot of the big wine makers from the U.S. and France now have a whole area in China that that they're growing grapes. You know, and obviously Australia and New Zealand are are obviously really big. But at the time when the when the story took place, you know, it really was well, only e- really France. Even when we made the movie, like we were almost laughing when we said, you know, wine would be made. In, in just these crazy parts of Eastern Europe, and now they are. Yeah. In Serbia, where we made the coffee movie, they have great wine. They, well, maybe the barista challenge will change their damn rule about cow's milk, too. Well, she in the movie, she has to, t- you know, she takes them to court and she has to get it all changed. And it's a whole big thing, you know, and it's eccentric and funny. And the cast is great. I mean, it's um, Kate Nash, who's who's a big UK pop star who was in um, Glow here in the US and in, in Netflix. Mm, and yeah. Monica, Saoirse Monica Jackson, who plays the lead of Dairy Girls, is in it. And Sally Phillips and Toby Sebastian and Freddie Fox. A lot of people. There's, there's just a, a really great, fun British cast. Well, all right. I guess that brings us then to... To Alan Sidney Patrick Rickman, um, <laughs> who, if you guys are unaware, I think our show just tries to shine a big, fat, blinking light on the Academy's F-ups. And each episode, we kind of single out one Oscar-winning film or a filmmaker of some type and give them that ill-gotten award or take that ill-gotten award away from someone and give it to someone else. But when we were planning the second season, we thought it'd be fun to break with the format. And we had the idea of giving an honorary Oscar, maybe recognize somebody who never got the gold statue. And 
it really didn't take much brainstorming. One of us said Alan Rickman, the other one was like, absolutely. And then since then, we've been just immersed in his work, stuff that we've obviously seen, stuff we never saw, and then some stuff we didn't even know existed. But as I pointed out earlier, we our picture of the man is limited to his work. So having you here to give Rickman some color and some depth and some background is really, really special. So you made three movies with Rickman, which are all, by the way, at the moment of this recording, streaming on Amazon Prime. The 2007 caper Nobel Son, where uh, Rickman plays quite an unsavory patriarch. <laughs> Second in 2008's Bottle Shock, a sweetly understated tale about hard work, passion, and family combat therapy. By the way, every time Rickman and Farina are on screen together, it's such a goddamn treat, but we'll get to it. And for a third, and unfortunately, uh, what would be the final time in 2013, he was the endearing gormandizer Hilly Crystal in the punk rock opus showcase uh, CBGB. But before we get to those, can you tell us the beginning? How did Alan Rickman become your frequent collaborator and, and close friend? Well, the thing about Alan is he reads and he thinks and he makes decisions for himself. I think of him always in the presence because I, I always feel like he's with us. So a lot of actors just do what their agents recommend. And But, but Alan had given an order to all of his representatives that anything that was sent to him be sent, sent to him that went through his agents. Agents are often, you know, have a stop sign and everything stops with them, be passed on to him. And we cold sent him the script for Nobel Sun. We offered it to his, it was William Morris agents, yeah. And they passed. We got a pass. And then we didn't stop there. We thought, okay, well, let's try his agents in the UK. And we sent to the UK and he had a, he has, he had a lovely, he has a lovely agent in the UK who passed it on to him. And, and he, he read it. And he read it. And then he called our house and left a message on our machine, which we kept for years and years and years. Oh, man. <laughs> yeah, he said. It was the nicest message he said, that we uh, ever got. He said, this is Alan Rickman. <laughs> um, how, did, how did he say it? He said, he said, thank you for being real writers, which was like. Wow. But then he said, of course, that he wasn't available during the time that we had offered him the role. You know, we had like scheduled out the movie. Uh, Noble Son, you know, I think, I don't even know, I think we'd cast all the other parts, most of the other parts. We were waiting to try and cast him. We were we were determined to try and cast him if we could. And we called him, he left a number. We called him <laughs> and we said, we'll turn the whole, we'll change the whole schedule. We'll do, we'll do everything. We changed the schedule. <laughs> we rescheduled everybody, you know, so that we could make it work with Alan. And that's how, and that's, that's how, how we met him. I am Kelly Lang, and I'm standing in front of the home of Dr. Eli Michelson, who was just awarded the Nobel Prize in Chemistry. Eli Michelson. Well, Eli, I guess this proves the Nobel's not popularity contest. If it were, you might actually have a shot at winning. Renowned scholar. If anyone in this room ever doubted my intellectual superiority, you can now formally kiss my... Loving husband. Final exams are in two weeks. If I don't get an A, I'm going to tell the whole world about my scandalous affair with you. Oh, get D's. An A it is. You earned it. Caring father. Eli Michelson, Nobel laureate. Yeah, listen to me, okay? Being held hostage by a very brutal man. Oh, bull. What kind of father treats his own flesh and blood like that? I have a mountain of anger. Taking his Nobel Prize money? I want to work with you on this. Sir, you're going to want to see this. Send my parents a thumb. Did you really think we'd get their attention with just a picture of you holding a newspaper? The crime is kidnapping. All right, man. So here's how it's going to go. While your father is wondering if life is better without you, passing in his finest, we'll sit on the wrong house. All right, stand down. We've uh, made a mistake. 
But the ransom is payback. Meanwhile, at the mall, once the drop is made, let the fun begin. Sir, it's driving away. How could that be? You gotta go through these leads. What do you say? It's going to Equator Brooks to meet a girl. Let's go back to my house. But you gotta wear the mask. Come on. Crazy. Crazy's just a choice, Parkley. If you can't make him proud. First, you lose my money, which is supposed to lead us to Barkley. And then, there's no word from Barkley. Make him pay. One million dollars. Yeah. He's going to Northwest Entrance. Who is he? Nobody's driving the car. You never heard a struggle. I didn't hear him commit. You don't want him to think you faked the kidnapping, do you? What the f***? Nobel son. Where'd you get the car? Same place I got the last one. The church. You stole it? You make it sound like it's a crime. Come on. He did an amazing job on that one. He was, he was amazing. Yeah, I just remember he was just the most gracious person. He didn't know us at all. And he just was, uh, yeah, it was amazing. And I'll tell you, like, independent films are difficult. You don't have money for great crew gifts or crew parties or whatever. And at the end of that movie, he paid for the rap party for the entire cast and crew. Wow. He said, what are we doing for rap? And we were like, well, we really, you know, don't have any more money. <laughs> and he's like, okay. What's it going to cost? I'm going to do it. Wow. And, uh, and he, he wrote a check. He wrote a check. It was pretty amazing, you know. He is such so. a pig in that movie. Like, <laughs> when... It- <laughs> I like I've, I was like blushing. I'm like during the opening scene where it's cutting between the characters and he's having intercourse with one of his students on his desk. I was like, oh, God, no, I don't want to see Ellen Rickman in this position. <laughs> I know. Like walking in on dad or something. I don't know. But it's so apt. Oh, God. Yeah, he's just so great. He so nails it. You know, he just gets it. That's how it was in those days in academia. And (laughs) he nails it. Yeah. That's how our collaboration managed to proceed, too. Because, you know, we would come to him with an idea and he'd say, okay, but I have to see the script. And then once we would give him a draft, we would sit with him after we knew him after the first time. Yeah. Um, sometimes for days and work on the project, work on the writing, work on the characterization. It's sort of like, why are we making this movie? What are we saying? You know, the bigger questions. For those of us who will never know, like, what was he like to work? Like, say I'm a writer and I know today I'm shooting with Alan Rickman. Like, what can I expect from from that day on set? He's a consummate professional. We would talk about everything, but he would be, I mean, just to give you an, an example, like on Bottle Shock, we're shooting, it's in Northern California, but it's in the summer, late summer. So it's probably like, I don't know, like 85 or 90. He's wearing like a three-piece wool suit. Right. And he's not like trying to rush. He's trying to do it. He's trying to do it perfectly. Like there's no he's not complaining about anything. He doesn't need to go back to his trailer or anything. He wants to talk about the lines or the or the or what the intention is of the scene. It was so amazing. It was like what you hope for, you know, in a in an actor like he he really was about the performance. So like in terms of a writer, like he would like sometimes he would come to us or, or, or Jody if I'm like setting up the shot and he would he would ask about 
about the intention of a particular moment or a particular line. But it wasn't like, let's do this line. I've had other actors where it's like, I don't want to do that line. I want to do this other line or I want to say this other thing. Like he was pretty much to the script. He would say what. But it was all collaboration with Alan. It was like collaboration, collaboration. Everybody has a job. Every job on set is creative and deserving of respect. And it was just that kind of quintessential collaboration that you always hope for. Man, yeah, that, I, didn't, I didn't know this was going to make me feel <laughs> I'm sorry, but like so bad totally, already. Yeah. I mean, I, I, to, to go on that, because have if things flash into my head of, of moments, right? So he's wearing the three-piece suit. We're out in the middle of like, it's in, the, it's in the movie and it's in the trailer too. He's wearing this three-piece suit. He has these like leather shoes, which are kind of slippery on the bottom. No, oh, when he eats shit on the side of the road. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. So so that's not in the script. Okay. Yeah. He kicks the tire and he slips and falls. Right. And then he's such a consummate, he gets back up again. Right. But it's so amazing the way that he does it because it's real, but it's also very much in character. Right. <laughs> and he, afterwards, he says to me, he goes, he goes, now, Randall, we're not going to use that in the movie, are you? And I'm like, no, we're <laughs> only going to use that in the trailer and we're only going to use that in the ads and we're going to do that everywhere. <laughs> you know, because that was amazing. But he never broke character. He never breaks character. And everybody, like, if you could have turned the camera around to the crew, like, everybody's worried, you know? Yeah, I mean, he's like <laughs> 60 or close to 60, and he it's hot, and he's in a three-piece suit, and he falls on his butt, you know? And it's like, you're worried. He's, like, hurt himself or something. And everybody right. rushes in, you know, to help him, and he just, like, he's fine. He wants to continue working. Yeah, but anyway, so that's that's kind of just give you an idea. But he, he is... He was pretty amazing that way. For centuries, the best wines in the world were made in France. And in 1976... I just read an article that said California is going to produce wine that will rival the finest of the French. Bonjour. They held a competition to prove it. I'm going to California to try and find some respectable competition. The world tends to think of us as a bunch of hicks <gasps> taking on the French. Did I mention that the tasting was blind? I don't know. If the French lose, they might bring back the guillotine. Is there a spare in that trunk? Oh, yes. And a first aid box with a snake bite kit. Ah. It was the American spirit. Hey, can we get a barrel sample for this French wine snob? He doesn't think we make real wine here. Against the French tradition. People make some pretty good wine in this area. My definition of palatable might be slightly different from yours. They didn't have the history. Everything all right here? This Californian wine what were you expecting, Thunderbird? They didn't have the culture. Hey, come on! Get some help! Oops. All they had... The cultivation of the vine is an art form. ...was a dream. Yeah! Ah! Peace, Pat! You'll tell your children about this wine! Oh, gee. That is some Chardonnay. If one of us wins, we all win, right? Good luck for now, I'm sorry, sir, but FAA rules only allow you to bring one bottle of wine in a travel bag. I can't have these wines jostled about in cargo. I'll take one, and so will my husband. I'll carry one for you. This fall, discover the true story. La première place. That shocked the world. 
bottle shock. Why don't I like you? Because you think I'm an ass, and I'm not really. I'm just British, and well, you're not. I really liked him in Bottle Shock, and I really, really liked him in CBGB. But I returned to Bottle Shock more recently, and um, he kind of reminds me almost like he he uh, like he could be that same level of of sophisticated as Hans Gruber from Die Hard. But it's like Han if Hans had gone into wine in, instead of uh, <laughs> grand larceny, and you know he's very particular about everything. It all begins with the soil, the vine. Great. God, when he eats the when he eats the Kentucky Fried Chicken and the guacamole, and he's very yeah. he's yeah. clearly very cautious about it, and he almost God when he rubs his fingers together and kind of nods at that farmer, just perfect. It's great, so good. smell of the vineyard, like inhaling birth. It awakens some ancestral, some primordial, anyway, some deeply imprinted and probably subconscious place in my soul. He had never had Kentucky Fried Chicken. <laughs> so I was like, okay, well, he's like, what's it like? I'm like, mm, we'll see. It's pretty good. Salty. <laughs> and he, he bit into it. And he was like, he's like supposed to like it in the script. So he likes it. And then as soon as it was over, he was like, this is god awful. And he like spits it out. <laughs> I was like, oh man, I wish I had that on film. <laughs> you know? But he was such a sport, you know, he's just such a sport about it. You know, he's not he wasn't like pretentious or, you know, like off times he's wearing like a sweat, the sweatshirt that the that the town gives you. He's wearing that shirt and some sweatpants and he doesn't care about any of that other stuff, you know, nice, which was just amazing to me. You know, Dennis Farina, the first night we introduced them. Yeah, <laughs> we Dennis were... is all dressed. Dennis is dressed because he's, you know, kind of fancy guy. Right. Yeah. Dennis was always dressed up and Suit really looked, you know, handsome and all turned out and we were working like it was a work night and Dennis had arrived in Sonoma and Alan's wearing some t-shirt like, we- <laughs> it's like it's like welcome to Napa or something like that you <laughs> and know? sweatpants <laughs> we were just working and it was just so funny the energy between them was just instant and magical and funny as all hell from the get-go and they became good friends yeah yeah, and Alan, then, you know, is a serious, you know, is a serious actor. Obviously, joke and everything, but Dennis Freena is sort of kind of like a, a mafia New Jersey guy a little bit, you know. Right. And it was just, it was just such an interesting the first meeting where he's like, "Yeah, well, so I'm thinking like this kind of, you know, like he's <laughs> like Dennis is talking that way, and and Alan is like trying to figure out what he's saying in it some <laughs> half the time. <laughs> Pretty funny. They're just magic together on screen, and then I got even doubly sex. I'm like. Like, God, both these guys are gone. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. they, and that's just the, the dynamic that they have that, you know, he does, he is, Farina had that, like, has that, like, abrasiveness. I mean, I can't see him and not think of uh, Snatch in particular, but, um, right. But he, he, <laughs> he just constantly gets taken to school by, by Rickman, just, and they, but they trade barbs at each other. It's just, I love every time he tries to, 
to sneak the, the wine and Rickman's surreptitiously moves it away farther away from him. <laughs> right. Right. But you can yeah. you can tell that they are they worked very well together. They the chemistry is it fits. True story of set in 1976, I play somebody called Stephen Spurrier who's still alive, great English wine expert and um, in 1976, he was running a wine shop in Paris, wasn't doing that well, and he thought, I'll uh, find a way to publicize this. It was also, of course, the American Bicentennial that year, so he put the two things together and thought, I'll have a blind wine tasting with all French expert panel in Paris of American wines and French wines, American wines at that time being sort of relatively unknown. So then he went off to the Napa Valley and met all these hick farmers and He's in his three-piece suit, in his briefcase, tasting American wines, finding out that they're really rather wonderful, and bringing them back to Paris, where, to the horror of the French judges, they gave first place to the American wines, both in red and white wines. And it was a big event, because it... Big event, it was a revolution in wine. Opened the yeah. doors to the new world, and, yeah, well, the new world of wines, yeah. How did they attract you? to doing this? Uh, were you just the world's living wine expert in your own mind? <laughs> Not at all. Uh, I'd done another film with Randall Miller, which is coming out in the spring, called Nobel Sun, which I love doing and I think is a great movie. And uh, I think he's starting to build a sort of repertoire of actors because both Bill Pullman and I and Eliza Dushku are in both movies. Other people are <laughs> not and other people are new to one or the other. Um, and I love working with him and Jody, his writing partner and producing partner. Um, so it was a question, and I'm probably the only English actor he knows. <laughs> so in the making of Bottle Shock, you're getting along with all of the actors you're working with in this? Or is everyone a, a oh, royal pain in yeah, the ass? No, 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 no. Oh, Alan, no, just no. come on. Sorry to yeah, not give you something. I wanted a little chew Judge Turpin out of you here. <laughs> um, no, uh, it, it, honestly, it's a great ensemble. That's it's. It, Randy can't work without that atmosphere, and uh, it's a great, a great deal of mutual respect and fun. If we take the films chronologically, Rickman's roles get a bit sunnier each time. It's nice to see him get to play those characters, and I'm so grateful to you guys for giving him them. I'm curious why it is you think that this guy, who by all scroungeable accounts, and there are a lot of them, was an absolute sweetheart. I mean, I've not read one bad thing. Like, no one ever said a shitty thing about the guy. <laughs> right. right. And he just played so many of these fork-tongued bastards. Was it? Did he, deep down, you think, like being bad on camera? Or was it just down to his, his voice? I got to imagine he wasn't super fond no, of always I playing think, the bad guy. I think he liked playing really what he would call well-written roles. And so to play the nice guy is not always that interesting. And Alan liked challenges. And so, you know, I, I think, well, playing Hilly was certainly a challenge. Here's Alan playing a Jew from New York. So that was a challenge. <laughs> Right, and we had lots of conversations about that. And the outfits, you know, like think about it. Like the other things, he's a little fancier in Nobel Sun, and then Bottle Shock, he's a little fancier wearing these suits. And in, and with Hilly, he's wearing like plaid and like <laughs> and like dirty jeans. And that Alan, hair. Alan was like, "Do I really have to wear this?" I'm like, "It's exactly what you're wearing." <laughs> Look at the pictures. Here's what the guy looked like. 
country and blues. In New York City. This club's gonna be different. Play some real music! This band is Talking Heads. With Blondie. With a Ramones. With the Dead Boys! Patty Smith Group. Lou Reed. You're a rock star. What does CBGBs stand for? Country Bluegrass Blues. We have a band. CBGB gets new customers buying drinks. He gets to play for an audience. You might want to consider an exterminator. Not very country. Hard to get Conway Twitty down to the Bowery. You have no idea what's about to happen here. You gotta spend money to make money. You gotta have money to spend money to make money. We've had some complaints. I'm not a very patient man, so I suggest you give me what I came here for. You treat me right, I'll treat you right. How you been, Leslie? Call me that. City's cracking down. Hillel Crystal. Divorced two bankrupts. I've been thinking I should start managing some of those bands. I am going to get them a record deal, and they are going to be big. These kids have something to say. We really should listen. You're punks. Anything bad, anything wrong, you want to do it. What are you doing? Investing. That's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. We got bills to pay. You have no vision, Merv. What happens to the cash at the end of the night? I put it in the freezer. Why would you save for your dreams? Why not live your dreams? Nobody is gonna like you guys, but I'll have you back. We got four songs. I don't want to walk around with you. I don't want to be tame. Anything you want to do? We're working on something now. Something positive? Yeah, it's it's called... I want to sniff some glue. Clean those targets. They're disgusting. Your dog is crapping everywhere. This is not a kennel. You're gonna want to crank it. Uh-oh. Not a bad night. Yeah, they electrocuted the guy. Doubled the attendance. CBGB. Country. Bluegrass. Blues. But without all that country bluegrass or blues. You play too loud. I'm walking out. Rocks! You don't have to put on the red light. I think that's sort of interesting to him, too, because he didn't get to do those kind of things, you know? Even right. if it was Snape in, in Harry Potter, he's sort of like... He's very proper and he's very, you know, the words are very, very carefully chosen the way he speaks in in, in that, you know, and, and it's different. CBGB, he got to do something different. It's great. So, yeah. It's wonderful. So which, if you had, you know, gun to the head, if you had to pick one of the three collaborations with Rickman, what would you say is your favorite? I don't even know. I mean, just working with Alan was just a privilege of a lifetime. Yeah. yeah. Just... That's working fair. with him he, he was a great friend Alan too so he was he was a great collaborator I used to always tease him and say he was my muse because I would sit around trying to think of you know projects to do with Alan because it was so rewarding to work with Alan and you know with acting it's like you can't not every project is right for the same actor but I mean I can think of like amazing moments <laughs> but I, I don't know that I could pick any one of his performances and, and say that was his best performance because they were all they were all good and they all mattered to him. And and the funny thing is that it's the, the time like for us, it's like there are moments in the movie, but then there's moments that we have with Alan that were during the making of that movie that were just so magical or so much fun, you know? Right. That that it kind of blend together in our heads. Like I think of like when we did that when we did CBGB, we did it in Georgia and at somewhere in the middle he wanted to go to this place and it was a place where they give you like, you know, twenty different entrees and you sit there and just sample everything. And it's well, he would good. just 
he would enjoy the place you were, you know, like he enjoyed the wine. He enjoyed people coming and giving us trying their wine, you know, which from some vineyard that we were at. That also sort of said so much about him. It's like he was so open and giving to all these other people. Like he would he would give assistance or young actors. He would give them advice and help them or or even steer them along the way. Like, yeah, he was that kind of person. The relationship, always trying to help everybody. And I think, I mean, we over the years became friends with a lot of his friends. Because when Alan came to town, lots of people would get together. And I, I think he was so many people's best friend because uh, he was a great friend. That's a really sweet sentiment. Did you have No one's him? ever going to say that about me. <laughs> <laughs> CBGB was like, as we were going through his entire filmography, it really does stand out with him and his roles. And it's completely different than anything he's done before. You said that sometimes you would try and think of an idea with Rickman in mind. Did you have him actually in mind to play Hilly? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) I mean, yeah. I mean, we we didn't want to make it without Alan. Like, you know, we had the idea to do this movie, but, but, you know, even before we started writing it, we'd done a bunch of, we did a bunch of research. We were in conversations with Alan. And then from the very first draft, he was living in New York and, and I would fly to New York and just spend days talking. The CBGB was a cornucopia of options because so much <laughs> happened at CBGB mm-hmm. and there were so many people involved and a lot of the people who were there at the time collaborated with us and because this was a like a beloved part of people's history. I mean, also people were very proprietary about the history. It was like, right. it was blue, it wasn't green and people would get all furious about you know certain things but other people were like, no, it was green it wasn't blue because everybody was stoned and messed up while they were there. <laughs> well, he, Alan, Alan was pretty good friends with Sting, you know, so he uh, and Sting, CBG was one of the first places that the police played and it was the first place they played Roxanne. So we had talked to Alan about wanting to have, you know, uh, Roxanne in the, in the movie. And so he was instrumental in helping us get the music, you know, so. I mean, Alan would just go out of his way to help in any way. Like, that's not normal for an actor well, to do. Well, he was friends would, with Sting. Yeah, but he would help in any way to, you know, to try to make things you even, better on the movie, whatever you, it was. You even mentioned in the, the commentary on CBGB that the kid that played Sting pretended to be from the same town. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he when he auditioned, he had like an impeccable accent. It wasn't until later we found out he was from the Keen, South. Keen, <laughs> Keen, right. McRae. Keen McRae. Yeah. And then when we found out, we had already cast him when we found out he wasn't even British. And, and then we were like, please, please don't ever break accent. Yeah, we were like, please, when you meet Alan, do not ever break accent. Just That's stay hilarious. Accent. You know, it's important. God, I mean, I, CBGB, I had a blast watching. Just a blast. I mean, I, every time a new band came on stage and, you know, Hilly's Rickman sitting there with his uh, <laughs> arms crossed, you know, kind of not really giving them any kind of nonverbal encouragement, just sort of like, okay, let's go. Let's see what you got. When the group came up and I'm like, now who are these dudes? They look like Weezer, but there's a girl. And then he goes, we're talking heads and we're from across the street. I was like, oh shit, oh shit. I got goosebumps at that part. <laughs> it was so cool. I mean, and then at the end, I mean, the police don't show up until towards probably like the latter third of the film. And uh, and I was like, God, they, who else are they going to throw in this mix? And then at the end, the police come in. I'm like, this is so cool. It's yeah, like it was a, just 
just, it was a place that, you know, it was like a little dive place that had such an impact on the music uh, business in so many ways because it was where all these bands had started. And Hilly's character, the character that Rickman plays, he was just, he wanted to do a country bluegrass and blues bar in New York, but couldn't book any country bluegrass or blues, right? <laughs> so he God. booked who he could book and he wanted to make sure they did their own music, you know, because he was worried about cost of like having to pay ASCAP and BMI fees and all that stuff. So he ended up becoming this sort of godfather of punk and made sure they played all their own music. And so in a way, he became this almost reluctant hero, you know, for yeah. oh, and I music love business entirely. And we worked really closely with his daughter, Lisa Crystal, and because she was, was still lived right near CBGB at the time that we were making the movie and was still very much in touch with a lot of the people that had been sort of seminal to its operation. So it was a fun movie to do. Yeah, it's a fun but movie. So to many people feel like they have ownership in that club. It's fascinating. Yeah, yeah. It's funny to hear how particular they are <laughs> coming from like the punk rock scene. Yeah, it's fascinating. Yeah, yeah. I mean, That's I guess you'd have the same thing if you think about it. Like whatever you know, whatever club here in the uh, in LA, you know, there's like the Troubadour or you know these different clubs. I guess people would have their own proprietary thing about that. You know, not not the way the CBGB was like an early religious experience for a lot of people. You know? Yeah. It's, the, um, it's interesting. I mean, that's why it was interesting to me. I went when I was broke and living in New York and trying to make it as a whatever I was trying to make it as. Did you see, do, who did you see when you went? Do you remember? I can't even remember. I just remember, you know, it was just a scene. <laughs> But so I, went cool. with, I would go with my college roommate. She was in medical school and I was just scrapping it out. <laughs> I mean, punk is my favorite genre, one of my top three favorite genres of music. And uh, so it was, yeah, it was a blast to watch that movie. It's a blast. Don't tell me there's something there. There is definitely something there. The Dead Boys. As long as they don't take their name too seriously. Billy Crystal. Jay Crow. That was good. That was really good. Thank you, sir. That means a lot, you know. Your dog is crepping on the floor, sir. Yeah, he does that. I piss in ice machines. Where are you guys from? Cleveland, sir. Well, I'm impressed with the youth of Cleveland. Oh, you shouldn't be. Why not? A lot of losers. Well, you seem awfully polite. Yeah, well, we were altar boys. That yeah, was a while ago. Look, Mr. Chris, we get the gig here or not? Yeah. So the premise of our show normally is to reaward an Oscar we felt went to the wrong person or film. However, our Alan Rickman episode was a unique one in that we started with the person we felt should have gotten an Oscar and spooled through as much of their filmography as we possibly could get our eyes on before deciding when and where he should have gotten the little gold man. What would you two say are among Rickman's finest performances? 
Well, Sense and Sensibility for me is like one of the best performances that he did. Of course, you know, he was just brilliant in that. Brilliant in Robin Hood, oh, you know, yeah. Truly Madly Deeply. Let me think. Well, obviously Bottle Shock. Bottle Shock, he did get a lot of acclaim for Bottle Shock. I saw but, that. But, you know, not quite. I mean, Sense and Sensibility, I would think he would have been nominated for. And then, of course, I think the last two Harry Potters, I think he elevated, you know, when they catch his tear at the end there. <laughs> I don't know if you remember this. But they catch his tear, and then they play his tear in this in the pensieve or whatever it is. Oh, the thing. I yeah. mean, I know too much about Harry Potter because we have two kids, and we you can never know too times. much about Harry Potter. But um, that last moment with him dying is unbelievable. Yeah, it's like it really an amazing is. piece of acting, in my opinion. So, so I would say those Love Actually, maybe there's there's a great there's I say great Bottle scenes. Shock. There's great scenes in that. Well, I mean, it's hard to do with your own movie. It's sort of, I mean, I don't, I'm trying to be fair here, you know? But, <laughs> well, um, hey. There's no point to being fair. <laughs> I think one of my favorite, I think you guys have a couple of my absolute, like when I think of Rickman now, I want to think more of, instead of him going, Oh, Loxley, I'm going to cut your heart out with a spoon. I'm going to cut your heart out with a spoon. Why a spoon, cousin? Why not a because it's dull, you twit. It'll hurt more. I want to see him smiling, like looking right back at the camera, like the final shot of Bottle Shock with that little smirk on his face, like, ha Napa. Yeah. <laughs> right. And he's right. and he's like, he's prescient in that moment, you know, because he's right, you know. <laughs> I mean, we, we worked on those lines together and he was totally correct. The world was going to change. I- I'm glad you brought up Snape just because Spro and I are pushing 40, pretty close for me, in fact, within the next couple of, couple <laughs> children, of days. Children. The first time I saw him was um, Robin Hood. The second time I saw him was Die Hard. Third time I saw him was Quickly Down Under. So I was just like, this guy's a oh, right. career bad guy. He's great, but he's a career bad guy. So when he got cast as Snape, I was like, well, yeah, obviously. But the arc of Snape ends up being this story within a story that he, not only is he not a bad guy, he might be the best guy guy and to me it was i remember once the final deathly hollows came out uh, my wife and i saw the octuple feature and then we saw all eight of them in the theater and um wow yeah oh it's worth it i love those movies but he um his arc is is that much more special to me because it's like see this guy i mean it's almost like a meta narrative for his own i mean I, yeah he had truly madly deeply he had sense and sensibility but for the majority of us he was always just this really good bad guy he even returned to it, you know, with Sweeney Todd and Nobel's son. But yeah, I don't know. There's something really special to me to me about about his role as Snape because I feel like it's a vindication of not just the character of Snape, but of of Rickman. And it is absolutely I'm gobsmacked still to this day that he wasn't that he didn't even get a nod for that. Yeah, performance. it's funny. Were any of those were any of the Harry Potter movies given any uh, Academy Awards or anything for writing or anything? They they won I think some technical awards, but no, mm-hmm. not writing, not acting. They weren't even nominated if I remember correctly. The other role he was amazing in was Galaxy Quest. Yes. He was great in Galaxy <laughs> He's Quest. He's the best thing about Galaxy role. Quest. Yeah, he was great in that. Him and Sam Rockwell. Yeah, yeah. Great, <laughs> great, great, great. I think it makes sense. Like, 
bring it back to what you guys originally said was that he was drawn to good writing. And I think Severus Snape is probably the best written character in the entire Harry Potter franchise. He has the most impressive arc. Yeah, yeah. And I'm sure that he was promised it would have that arc because I can't imagine him doing it unless he knew that there was that place to go with the character. And there is some scuttlebutt to that exact effect that JK pulled him aside. Um, I read it one place that he almost was like ready to be recast after it was either Chamber of Secrets or after Prisoner of Azkaban, the second or the third film. And he kind of was over it. And so Rowling pulled him aside and said, here's why you can't be over it. Here's where, where your character goes. She tweeted out, she said, you know, people are like, what did you tell him? What did you tell him? What did you tell him? And her, her response was, I told him what it means, what always means. So presumably she told him about the, the platonic friendship between he and Lily that he always wished had been more of a platonic, more of a romantic one. Yeah. That one right. gets me, gets me. We, well, I watch him every year. It's my, uh, <laughs> my winter viewing tradition. Yeah. Knowing Alan, she could have probably just even said, trust me. I know where this is going. Trust me. And he would have probably trusted her. But how much did he know originally? Because there was always been this thing of yeah. Alan, well, knew Alan something. Alan really makes me laugh. Um, right, it, it's uh, he. It's absolutely true. I told him really early on that he that Snape had been in love with Lily. That's why he hated James. That's why he projected this this amount of dislike onto Harry. So he knew that. And at what point- then I heard you told me yeah. that he'd been saying in. in I don't know whether it was more than one scene, but you told me that he'd said, um, I just don't think Snape would do that. Yeah. Given what I know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I do thought, Alan, that. are you really milking this now? <laughs> if your camera angle's not good enough. <laughs> now, I really feel at this point, Snape would be center stage in the good life <laughs> because of what I know. I did see a, an interview with the New York Times and the, the interviewer, this was after all the films had been filmed and he was talking about, you know, they were shooting the first one when she was writing the fourth one. And the interviewer was like, well, what what did what did she say? What did he, what did she tell you? And he said, no, nah, I promised I would never tell and I never will. And it just yeah. speaks to his character. Yeah. And then you got Tom Holland being like, oh, God, this is what happens in the next Spider-Man. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what? Did I do it again? <laughs> this has been such a pleasure for us. And I, I'm eternally grateful that you two have come onto our show. And I'm hoping that we can finish by having you two share some uh, a favorite memory or anecdote of Mr. Rickman. Um, honestly, as much as you want. <laughs> we're, yeah. we're all ears as we finish out this interview. Thank you so much for your time. Oh, sure, sure. I mean, gosh, uh, I think of all these scenes, I think of all the different scenes we shot with Alan. I think of one scene that always I always think about is um, it's in the beginning of Bottle Shock where he's he's not his, you know, as his character, he has not been invited to be a member of the society that is, um, what's the name of the society, the Onophile Society, that he's supposed to be able to drink these wines. So they add him, they add his little table to the back <laughs> by okay. the door, you know? Yep. And I just remember <laughs> he, he kept saying to the extra, harder, hit the table harder. Like he wanted it to be as hard, you know, for him to manage the moment as possible. And I just remember thinking it was so brilliant. Like it was just like one shot. We pushed in on him sitting there and it was just, I just thought, oh, oh my gosh, if nothing else goes right on this movie, this one moment is just so breathtaking to me. You know, it was just so perfect. It was like something out of a, a classic, you know, uh, Preston Sturgis 
just comedy or something. He was so magical in that moment. I always think of that moment. So there was no words. There were no words. It was just him sitting there. You know, no, none needed with the reactions that he has in that. Yeah. <laughs> no, and we were. It was so hard not to laugh hysterically out loud. Like the whole crew had their hand over their mouth. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I just, I just think there's, he was just so, that thing is just sort of a general thing. He was just so gracious with the other actors. Like if, you know, he, he would just work with them in a, in a, in a way that would be, I don't know. It was like, they knew who he was because obviously he is the guy from Harry Potter and every, and all the other movies they knew, but he was just so gracious and open to like, um, you know, like a day player who would come in to do one line or two lines, he'd make them feel comfortable. He would, he would help them, you know, feel comfortable or you know, not be nervous because, you know, when you're shooting in a distant location, sometimes you have just an actor come in for one day, one moment. Yeah. And it can be intimidating if that moment involves Alan. Alan but, you know, Alan just he sort of celebrated everybody's contribution. And and I will say that one of the more amazing things about Alan is that when it came time to eat on set, so it's lunchtime at whatever time of the day you're taking lunch because lunch isn't at lunchtime. It's six hours from when you start. Alan would always just sit down and eat with all the rest of us. Like a lot of actors were like, I need to take my food in my trailer. I need to have different food. Like, you know, I need to have green food or yellow food. But Alan would just be be like, you know, what are we having? He would honor whatever the caterer made, you know, make everybody feel good about whatever their contribution was and just sit down and eat with everybody else. And that may seem like a small thing, but I think that's a big thing. And it really speaks to, you know, his character. He just was happy to celebrate who everybody was, how everybody was, had something to contribute in any way. And and he was grateful for how everybody enabled or helped or served um, the process of making the movie. I mean, on a movie, every single person on the set is theoretically, ideally, um, contributing to the making of that movie. It is a collaboration. And he understood that thoroughly. Yeah, I mean, a com- a common thing for like a famous actor, not Alan, but other famous actors is is they do their they do their performance on their side, but then when you do the coverage, meaning when the camera's on them, the camera's on them, but when the camera's not on them, when it's over their shoulder, they just kind of mumble the lines, right? And you're supposed to try to like act against that. He would always do it the exact same way, give 100%. them hundred percent, you know, which is just really gracious. And and I thought I thought that was really great, you know. He always it's played. also because you know he love the theater and you can't be a prima donna in the theater right is yeah. that true? Yeah, I mean, it would be hard, you know. <laughs> I mean, you can try to be, but I mean, the pr- like, like we we went to see him in various shows, you know, on Broadway, and it would be like these little cramped little rooms, and in the, you know, a, a nice theater. They're charging a fortune, but he's in the back of the his little room in the back of the theater, and that's what they gave him. That's where he is. That's where he was every single night, you know. <laughs> and it's not, you know, the way you imagine it, it. You know, is not the way it is. You know, it, the theaters are really small in the backstage areas. You know. And um, he wouldn't complain. He would just go forward and do what they asked him to do. They asked him to do publicity on a theater thing. He would do it. He'd do it on a movie. He'd do whatever the people would ask him to do. And he would never want like a bigger trailer or a bigger space than the other actors. He was adamant about that. 
Yeah. He's, he yeah. seems like incredibly zen. I've watched a lot of lot of interviews over the last couple of months with him in him. And he just, he never allows himself to get too excited. And, and he responds with a lot of the time with a lot of humility. You know, people will throw, th- you know, lines at him praising his career and he'll, he does the well. I don't know about that. Yeah. He just, he's very, he was very soft spoken, which is interesting because of how bombastic so many of his characters are. Yeah. And also really funny. Uh, yeah, he, you know, he and is. I don't, you know, I don't. He he did some comedy, but yeah, no, he he definitely had places in in London that he would go to, invite friends, and they'd all go together, and he would keep friends from the mostly from the theater, and he would go and and sort of hold court, and and uh, and they would all joke and carry on, and he, so he he had de- he definitely definitely had like a fun showman side to him, but it wasn't anything that would ever be you know you could ever say anything bad about. It. Like he was just really the sort of the life of the party. He was really fun. Yeah. Did you ever see, if you haven't seen it, you should, it's on YouTube. There's um, a little extra from the DVD of Prisoner of Azkaban that somebody loaded up there. There was one time where in this room, actually, Michael Gambon and Alan Rickman, and I think Alfonso was kind of coordinating it, um, oh, took the opportunity no. to uh, Take- play a, um, a practical joke on me. Really, really funny. And uh, for you. Yeah. And, um, <laughs> the whole of the Great Hall is sleeping. <laughs> It was very good because it was a bunch of sleeping bags and, and, and Dan has us to have his sleeping bag next to this particular girl that he fancied. I guess Harry, uh, Daniel Radcliffe had a bit of a crush on one of the other, it's kind of like one of the extras that played the uh, the Hogwarts students. And um, they had the scene where they're all huddled together in fear of Sirius Black and they're all sleeping in sleeping bags. Action! For now, let them and see. Snape and Dumbledore are kind of walking up and down the the aisle, and I guess Rickman put a fart machine inside <laughs> inside Daniel Radcliffe's sleeping bag. Our own world, you know, it's completely our own world, and we like to we like to swim. In the deepest waters. Because he knew because he because <laughs> he knew that he was right next to this girl that he liked, and then gave the little clicker to activate it to um, Michael Gambon. It's pretty great. <laughs> if you've never watched that, it's worth a look. If even only just to see this the impish smile on uh, <laughs> on Rickman's face as Gambon's delivering his lines, you know, punctuating them with various flatulence. <laughs> <laughs> That sounds really funny. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's that's funny. Plus CBGB well, he worked with Rupert again. Rupert yeah. Grant. And yeah. that was yes. really fun for them. Yes, he was one of the yeah. dead boys. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Cheetah Chrome, yeah. Yeah. And 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 Cheetah Chrome was so excited that Rupert Grant was playing Cheetah Chrome because Cheetah Chrome had a young child who was a big Harry Potter fan. Yeah. Uh, and so he came he came and met got to meet Alan and and uh and Rupert. Rupert. That was pretty cool for him. Not to branch off even further, but I really love Freddie Rodgers. Rodriguez and uh, the fact that he was in two of the films, um, I just want to express my appreciation <laughs> that I was well, able Fred, to see. Freddie is, Freddy is just a, another great actor too. He's another. He's very, very selfless. You know, very, really great to work with actor. Hey, if we're branching off, uh, <laughs> I don't know how to say the gentleman's last name, but the one who plays Thaddeus, Sean Hattesey. Hattesey. So Sean Hattesey is in Animal Kingdom, and he he plays one of the one of the brothers in that and. And he's just, I think he's just a really talented actor. You know, he's really, really 
plays it plays a dark humorous sort of role really well you know and um you know he i thought he was just great in the scenes he had you know throughout uh he's a really good Noble actor. Son, really good actor we saw yeah. him in a play and then we ended up casting he should be in more things and yeah more more films personally Th- these casts that you guys put together are just brilliant in all three films um thank you you. just going back to uh nobel's son like every time somebody came up on the screen i don't do you work with the same casting agent every single time the same casting director uh we we have worked with um rick pagano a number of times and uh rick rick cast um geez he's cast five movies with us i think a lot of movies a lot of movies we've just been really fortunate you know he's really he's got really good taste and and we've been really fortunate to appeal to a lot of the actors that we wanted to work with and they and they say yes which is which is also really amazing well it's got to be a, a damn good testament to your guys' skill with you know the real writing and the real directing that <laughs> these wow. people seem to be gravitating towards you sometimes you get lucky <laughs> <laughs> there's that rickman humility <laughs> well, you know, you just get lucky sometimes. You could pick a lot of bad people, but you get lucky. You pick find Alan Rickman. It's like you got to stick with him. He's so good. Mm-hmm. Well, I never met the guy, and now I miss him even more. <laughs> yeah, I miss him. I can I can only imagine. I can only imagine. I'm we're so pleased to be able to to talk about him and keep his name in people's ears and uh, just remind everybody that this guy had not just a great CV, but great friends who would go out of their way to make sure that everyone knew how great he was. And I, I got to say, I think the title of the episode should be, he was everyone's best friend. Uh, that's quite, quite the sentiment. Yeah. I think that's well, true of an awful lot of people. Well, we don't want to take up any more of your guys' time, but we are eternally grateful for you taking uh, some of your Saturday afternoon to chat with us. Well, no th- promise. Great. Thank you so thank much. Thank you. Thank you for letting us bring back these memories. It's fantastic. Absolutely. We'll keep our our listeners posted about... You're referring to it as the coffee movie or is it officially no, coffee? No, it's War? called Coffee Wars. Coffee okay. Wars. Um, yeah, because that's, you know, that's where we are in the coffee wars. <laughs> <laughs> Now that's a war I can get behind. Yeah, which one's better? You know, you never know which coffee's better. Which you know, which, you know, and we're and it's the third the third wave coffee, which is the you know people make it you know very little coffee shops versus the Starbucks versus the other places. So it's it's got a whole infrastructure to it. You know, wine does too. Similarly, so I mean, we can bring it all to a point. What would you say is your favorite thing that you learned about coffee while researching for Coffee Wars? Oh man, uh, <laughs> I mean, I knew about it but i didn't really get into the detail of patterns in the milk you know the way they the way these baristas do the patterns in the milk and you know all the different types of patterns that they do faces to to just you know beautiful designs that that always sort of you know i sort of took that for granted i thought oh that's kind of cool the way they do that but i didn't realize it was an art to it you know yeah it's definitely an art form and and then and then it's the i didn't really fully understand the similarities to wine in, in terms of the beans and how they're grown and where they're grown and how they're roasted it's 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 an art form you know people uh take great care in it and when anytime you get into something where people really care about it and it's like a culinary thing you realize how much more there is to it you know and that that was something that really made me appreciate it more so so i like that i think alan would have really liked that too (laughs) (laughs) it's the kind of thing that he would have been really into i think would be the the culinary aspects of you know of great coffee maybe maybe he liked tea better i don't know (laughs) 
All right. Well, uh, good gravy, Marie. I guess that's it. Jody, thank you very much. Randy, thank, thank you very you. much. Um, thank you. Jody and Randy's films, Nobel Sun, Bottle Shock, and CBGB are all available for streaming on various different platforms, but I know for sure that all three of them can be seen on Amazon. Check them out. So thank you, Jody. Thank you, Randy. Thank, thank you, you, guys. Have a great thank day. You. you too. I'm tense and nervous and I can't relax I can't sleep cause my bed's on fire Don't touch me, I'm a real live wire Psycho killer, We'd like to one more time express our deepest gratitude to Randy and Jody for gracing us with their presence, sharing their stories, and helping us celebrate the great Alan Rick. We sincerely hope to talk to them again in the new year when Coffee Wars is making its rounds. Coffee Wars is their upcoming release. But until then, we want to highly suggest that our listeners give their films a watch. As of recording, all three of them, Nobel Sun, Bottle Shock, and CBGB, are available on a variety of different streaming platforms. Please give them a watch and support these filmmakers. Well, uh... <laughs> I know what you're about to say. <laughs> what am I about to say? That, that this is the end. This, that this is, is the end of season two. It's it's merely a hiatus. It's just a, merely a hiatus. We'll be back again, won't we? Are you going somewhere? Yeah, well, well the fun thing is, is this episode will air December 13th. So our audience doesn't have to wait too long for a new episode as we are going to do our year in 2021 wrap up, which should go up in January. So just a month, I guess. Just a month. Yeah, not too long. And we, we could use- Leave some, a review? I was gonna say, just going to say we could use some more reviews. They're all glowing. You know, Do you nothing. have the written reviews in front of you? We should read the written reviews. We should give our review writers some press. Okay. Time. Okay. Okay. You read one. I'll read one. Tell me where to find them. How do you? How do you leave a review? That's a. Let's walk the horse to water. <laughs> so you go to, you, go, you go to Apple Podcasts. Spro and Lee take on the Academy, and then you scroll all the way down to the bottom. So the title of this review is This Is The Way. Five stars. Spro and Lee have a winning formula here. The Academy Awards have long been a pompous affair for socialites and politically motivated gestures. More often than not, I've watched my favorite performances and films being passed over despite their brilliance. Spro and Lee, having next to zero clout in the industry, are above or beneath, if you like, such pompous and greedy motives. Their reviews of film are steeped in the technical savoy. Did I say that right? They're... I don't... <laughs> Uh, their reviews of film are steeped in the technical savoy of the makers, the passion of the performers, and the emotions evoked in these two charming podcasters. Aww. It is a joy to listen to them unpack the work of the nominees and justify the revocation of the Oscar in favor of often more deserving recipients. It's just a lot of fun to listen to. A unique idea, gentlemen. Holy cow. That was very well worded with thesaurus words. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and long. If you want to leave us a review, it doesn't have to be that long. I'm actually glad that you took that one because I got Zippy Two Shoes, who also left a five-star review, but it's shorter. The title is About Time! Exclamation point. It's about time an honest reveal of the Academy Awards was here. Very fast-moving entertainment about the business end of the movies, the Academy Awards. Fun, in-depth look into who won what and who should have won what. Here's hoping for a long run, guys. Well, if you're planning on writing a review we want to say thanks in advance if you can't no problem uh, we'd still love it if you would reach out to us if you have anything you want to say any suggestions you want to make any mistakes that we made we still have those spro and lee stickers that we can send out to people i don't think we made as many mistakes this season as last season but 
Somebody can prove me wrong if they want. Well, I can't believe we're two seasons done. I can't believe we it's going on two years that we started this. That's nuts. Mm-hmm. Crazy. And who knows how much longer. But if the Academy Awards keeps making mistakes, we will keep pointing them out. Uh, but we have to conclude this. We have to we, conclude we season two. We do. We do. That's fine. We worked hard on this one. Was season two an improvement over season one? I think so. And so we just set the bar even higher for season three. And then we can discuss in January whether or not our Poly Academy series was uh, a success or a failure. Hey, if it opened the audience's eyes to how deep the rabbit hole goes in these political decisions that the Academy makes, it was a success, even if it's just one person. One of two of our listeners out there that go, oh. I didn't know that. So, yes. But season three, will there be more guests? Will there be more intrigue? Will there be more controversy? I think we have to do it. I think we have to approach this like a Netflix show and just throw everything at the wall in season three. I hope so. Let's do that. Let's go. All right. So until 2022, I am Spro. I'm Lee. And we hope to see you sit in front row when the envelopes are red. Whenever young actors now say to me, what advice do you give me? Uh, you know, I'm thinking about training, I want to be an actor, whatever. I say, forget about acting. Um, and I really mean it at, at that point in time, because whatever you do as an actor is, is cumulative. It's about, so I say, go to art galleries, listen to music, know what's happening on the news in the world. and. Uh, form opinions, develop your taste and judgment so that when a quality piece of writing is put in front of you, your imagination, which you've nurtured, has something to bounce off of. Yeah, and your uniqueness. Yeah, and then you have to start learning about courage, I think. Courage? Um, yeah, because you have to be courageous with yourself on stage, I think, emotionally. Because you have to hand yourself over completely to whatever are the emotional demands of a part in front of a film, film camera, but certainly on stage, uh, you, there's this kind of Geiger counter that is at, at exactly the same time assessing what's yeah. happening out there and what's happening there yeah. to the person you're talking to. And did this word land or now that one didn't land now I'm going to have to pick up that word but yeah. at the same time the bit of you that doesn't know it's lying because of course you we're divided from the neck up yeah. it's just a load of lies but the rest of you has no idea that it's lying so uh, that's that's the punishing part of acting is yeah. taking the rest of your body into this strange place that it finds it hard to recover from Um, if you'll forgive me, it was an awful week and Alan died. And I wonder if you'd all stand up and clap.
you so much for doing that. <laughs> it's a funny time to be nominated for things and accepting prizes when people as great as him have left us. But I don't want to leave you on a sad note, so I'm going to tell a funny story about Al if I can. When I worked with him when I was only 19 years old, I was absolutely terrified on day one. And I remember him looking at me and I remember feeling so small, smaller than I'd ever felt before in my life. And after a few weeks of getting to know him and realising just how wonderful and warm he really was, I was standing there in my costume on Sense and Sensibility and my knickers had gone up my bum. <laughs> And, um, you know, when you're trying to flick your knickers out of your ass and you're wearing a corset, it's actually quite tricky. <laughs> and so I was sort of yanking at my pants. <laughs> and Emma Thompson was standing right there. And I said, oh, fuck, my fucking knickers have gone up my ass. And Al just said, ah, oh, feminine mystique strikes again. <laughs> Thank you very much.